0: Hello everybody, this is Dr. Laura Froyen, and I'm here with a really exciting episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I say that a lot, but I really mean it this time because I've got a crew of amazing parenting and child development experts who are going to help us understand a little bit more about what's going on when kids are having a challenging or hard time and how we can best support them. So to help me with this conversation, I've brought in the Childhood Collective. They are an amazing group of women who just get it. They get what we're trying to do here at this podcast. I'm so excited to have them. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you, and then we're going to dig into this conversation. Mallory, why don't you take it away?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And we're so excited to be here. My name is Mallory Yi. I am a child psychologist just, but currently a stay-at-home mom, <laughs> although we debate whether I'm a stay-at-home mom or work from home mom now that you know the childhood collective is ramping up. And prior to becoming a stay-at-home mom, however, I worked in the schools, I'm trained in school psychology, And I also worked in private practice, doing a lot of diagnostic assessments for families, doing a lot of therapy, worked in pediatricians offices, reaching families in that way, which was amazing because they were already coming to the doctor and then I was there to kind of provide this medical home. But now, you know, my most important job of all now, stay-at-home mom. I have two young boys, two and a half, four and a half. They're really making me put all of my knowledge to work every day (laughs) (laughs) and extending myself a lot of grace. It really is. So I'm living that stay-at-home mom life. And it's actually, it feels like it's been recent, but we're coming up on the three year anniversary of that, I think. So it's been a while now.
0: (laughs) Oh, we're so happy to have you and Lori, you're next.
2: Yep. I'm Lori Long and I am also a child psychologist trained in school psychology and I started a private practice in Scottsdale Prism where I mostly do diagnostic evaluations for autism, ADHD, specific learning disorders like dyslexia. And yeah, I had training and a background in doing therapy uh, for anxiety or helping support families with ADHD. And, you know, through that process kind of saw a lot of families really struggling after they get the diagnosis. And in particular kids with ADHD, a lot of those families were coming in having gotten a diagnostic evaluation from a pediatrician was pretty minimal and they were kind of like not knowing where to go and how to get support. And they really just wanted practical strategies and it was hard to give parents evidence-based services, even in, the huge area of Phoenix, you know, not a lot of providers were doing parent training and parent help for kids with ADHD. And so we really started the childhood collective to provide an online course, creating calm to support our parents of kids with ADHD. Yeah. We're doing that through the childhood collective.
0: Amazing. And Katie, tell us where you fit in in the collective.
2: Perfect. So I'm Katie Severson, and
3: I'm the speech language pathologist. Um, I also work in private practice. I actually lead a small team of speech pathologists in within a psychology practice and small world. That's where we all met kind of once upon a time, but I'm the only one that's still there. And I work a lot with the psychology team that we have there in terms of just differential diagnosis, when we're looking at a child with autism or ADHD, different learning issues and helping figure out how their language their social skills, their executive functioning, how that all fits into the bigger picture that the psychologists are painting with their reports. So that's been a huge passion for me. I've been doing diagnostics for almost 10 years. And when I do therapy, because I do more testing now, I try to focus the kids that I see more in the field of executive functioning and ADHD. And so it's been kind of fun with the Childhood Collective bringing out kind of those things that you teach parents every day in one-on-one. And, and I know that this is something that you're really passionate about too, Laura, is just being able to reach more families and do it on a larger scale. And so I generally will be the one talking about tools that parents can use. I'm also a mom and I use these strategies in my own home all the time. When they're not working, I'm problem solving right along with our parents. So that's a lot of my pieces. I think of the tactical kind of executive functioning piece.
0: I love it. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk with a group of women who have such broad expertise and really share this vision of seeing the child as a whole person and seeing the family as whole and deserving of wraparound support. That you know, when we see them as whole kids and whole families, we are looking at ways to support the entire family system. And I love that you do that. Okay. So we wanted to talk a little bit then about, I know that you often I want to support families as they are coming in, they've gotten a mm-hmm. diagnosis or so they're figuring out what their diagnosis is, um, particularly kids with anxiety and ADHD. As families are in that space, what are some of the first things you start helping them with as they are navigating this kind of unsure time?
1: I think a big piece, especially if the family is recently diagnosed, if the child just has a diagnosis, is really helping the family understand what that means understand how their child's brain works, understand that their child's diagnosis is not their fault, helping them see how having the diagnosis can be really empowering for them as parents because they can figure out how to best support their child, but how it's also empowering for their child. I think a challenge for a lot of children, if they're to the point where they're walking through our door for a diagnostic assessment, they realize that something is different. That their brain works differently, that something is challenging for them in a way that it's not challenging for other kids in their class, maybe. So I think a big piece is also working with the child to learn how their brain works differently, but how that can really be an asset for them, how we can help in those areas that are more challenging, but also tapping into some of those strengths that come from the ways that their brain works differently. So a lot at the beginning is education, and a lot of it is mindset shift too. helping them see... How the road ahead can be really positive and fulfilling now that they have
0: this diagnosis and we have a little more guidance. Yeah. Does anybody have any other things to add to that piece of it?
3: I think for me, too, you know, it is that reassurance and really building rapport with the parents because a lot of times I see kids that maybe weren't picked up really young as having like a traditional language issue. A lot of kids, especially with ADHD, didn't have a language delay at let's say birth, right, like as a three-year-old, where their language starts to become more problematic is as they get older and as they start to write and they start to need executive functioning skills and cohesion, right, to write a paragraph or a story or an essay, these kind of things, you start to see, and those are all fundamentally language-based issues. but And the same with social skills, right? They don't present like a child with autism who at the very beginning might be much more independent and less socially engaged, but as they get older and social skills get more nuanced, kids with ADHD who can be really impulsive can really struggle in reading social situations, modulating themselves to the situation. So these parents are coming in a little later, like their child might be seven, eight, nine years old, and they're going like, something's not quite right. You know, I'm not really sure. And it might've taken them a really long time to get to this point of getting this diagnosis or getting the help that they need. And even getting a speech pathologist, like it's not always common for a child with ADHD to get a speech and language eval, although it's super helpful and can really pinpoint some of these issues. So a lot of what I do is really validating the parent and listening mm-hmm. to them and taking careful notes on what they say. And I have a pretty good memory. So maybe I don't even need to take those notes, but they watch me type what they're saying. And it's like, yes, someone is hearing me. They believe me. They see that this is an issue. And so I know that that can be really exhausting as a parent because you feel like you're always trying to explain what you're seeing. And there's always going to be that friend that says, everything's fine. Grandma is like, he's just a busy guy or whatever. So just validation, I think is such a huge piece of the puzzle.
2: Yeah. And I feel like with the families that I work with, you know, most of the kids that I'm seeing don't just have one single diagnosis they have ADHD and dyslexia, or they have autism and dyslexia and anxiety. And so there's oftentimes a lot of different things going on. And for parents, a lot of times it is prioritizing kind of treatment and and what to do. And uh, you can't, it can be so overwhelming when you get tons of recommendations about how to address dif- different areas. And I think for parents trying to help them kind of decide on what is their biggest challenge or struggle right now? And how do we kind of focus on that or address that first so that they're not completely overwhelmed by that process? So,
0: so good. Okay. So I'm thinking about a question right now, and I, I want to just take a second to make sure I get it out right. So I know that you all are very you know interested in the Ross Green Collaborative and Proactive Solutions model, the model that's described in a number of books, but parents are most familiar with the explosive child. And in that book, They really do a really nice job of describing how some of these underlying issues can make a kid look like they've got behavioral challenges, where you make a kid look explosive. And really, there's these underlying things. Do you see this a lot with ADHD and anxiety in kids? And how do you help parents shift from seeing like okay when he's bothering his friends that this that's really ADHD that's happening when he's losing it after school it's really because he's got executive over you know functioning overload you know from school he's exhausted you know can you speak to that a little bit?
2: I think it we talk a lot about anxiety through the childhood collective and this is one where we see a lot of families especially at school and you know we've talked about school refusal and some of our kids will you know, tear up the front office of the school and they'll be running away from school and they will be cussing and hitting and all of these things. And people don't make that connection that that's anxiety, you know, because to us, anxiety is just kind of being frightened and shivering and kids will state that they're worried. And a lot of our kids really don't have the language to say that they are afraid of a situation. They don't have the language to say what is going on, Um, but their body is in a a state of fight or flight. We, you know, when they're anxious and for a lot of our kids, they start fighting, you know, some of them will flee and run away, but some of them will start fighting. And so, yes, I think a lot of times trying to help parents and school staff understand what is the underlying issue. Cause if we treat it like, It's just a behavioral problem. We never get at the source of that. And if you try and force a kid into a a situation where their anxiety is a ten, you know, a ten out of ten you're never going to get them to do that. You know, if you made me stand on a stage with two million people in front of me, I'm not going to talk. I'm just not (laughs) because I'm terrified and I can't do that. It's too much for me. So I think it's really important to kind of get at that underlying issue and identify that. And I think Ross Green does a really good job of trying to teach parents that there's usually an underlying skill that is missing or an underlying issue going on that can look like defiance.
1: Absolutely. And Like Dr. Green says, kids do well if they can, and we really adopt that mindset with the Childhood Collective, and that's a huge mindset shift for parents because that's not what society is telling them. Society is telling them that they messed up somehow, that they're bad parents. Mm -hmm. Society is telling them that they have a naughty kid, and society has a ton of opinions about what they need to do about that.
0: Yeah, and And, there's also the like the piece of like they can do it sometimes. So a lot of parents say come to me and say, "I know they can do this because I see them do it in circumstances." And that means when they're not doing it, they're choosing not to.
1: Absolutely, that makes me think of another scenario that a ton of families come to us with that's incredibly frustrating but really common, and that's that their child holds it together at school and then they come home and it's ultimate meltdown, Mm -hmm. and it's confusing for parents about why can my child regulate their emotions at school? Why can they you know, listen to the teacher? The teacher is telling me about one kid and I tell you, that's not my child because my child comes home and that's a different child. And that's a challenge for a lot of families is again, when the underlying need isn't addressed, whether it's anxiety or we need to build skills, some kids can hold it together really well, but it is taxing. And it is taking every last drop of energy and mental focus at school. And then parents get the meltdown at home because it's safe and because the child has nothing left to give. So that's another really challenging, a challenging thing that we see families face in that way.
0: I see that all the time too. And it's so important to know too, that that just because a kid looks like they're regulating, it doesn't actually mean that they necessarily are. They could very well be stuffing. And of course, we know that when you're stuffing, it's got to come out somehow. This will come out later, but I'm releasing a reel, an Instagram reel on this exact topic that I recorded a couple of days ago. So hopefully you'll take a look awesome. at it. Yep. But yes, it's so common. I hear it all the time. My kids can hold it together so well. It's they're angels at school, they're model students at school. Mm-hmm. And then they come home and everything is no and it's everything is destroyed and it's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's so hard as parents to be on the receiving end of that. I've got one Mm -hmm. of those kiddos who just white knuckles through her day at school. Mm -hmm. She's in a different school this year that is not challenging in the same way her other school was and she doesn't do it anymore. She's another year older but she doesn't come home with massive headaches and She would get so dysregulated in her old school where she would come home with literal fevers, 99 to 100 degree fever once or twice Mm. a week Not because she wasn't sick. Her body was just that dysregulated. Yeah. Um, That's so challenging. It's so hard. It's hard when we love our kids so much and we want the little angels. We want nice, kind, sweet moments with them.
2: But I, I always try and tell parents. Like we're all like that, you know, I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to be really sweet and polite to the people that I'm seeing. But then I come home and after a stressful day, I'm snapping at my husband and don't I'm talk to me. angry and don't talk to me and. <laughs> We're all like that to some extent. In some ways, there's a positive in the sense that our kids feel safe Mm -hmm. with us. They feel unconditionally loved and they feel like they can be that way around us, that they don't feel like they can be around other people at school. So Mm -hmm. in some ways, though, it feels awful. They feel that way because they feel safe.
1: Another challenge with this scenario, too, is that we're seeing the challenging behavior at home. The fix is really at school. This is where families encounter difficulties with the school when the school is saying, they're fine. They hold it together all day. They get their work done. What do you mean your child needs extra support or accommodations at school? The, the problem is at home. But with these kids, that's not the case. They're telling us that they need more support at school, more accommodations. Something is really challenging there. Their needs are not being met at school, even though they're holding it together. Appearances, you know? So that's another challenge that families face is getting their child extra support at school when appearances would make you think that they're doing fine.
0: How can parents do that? Because I know so many parents are in this situation where they know that they're doing what they can at home and they need a partnership with their school, but because the school isn't seeing it, there's not resources available. They can't get an IEP so that they can get accommodations. What can a parent do to advocate for their child in these scenarios?
3: We recently did a thing where we were asking people on our Instagram and our email list like what do you need from the teachers if you're a parent and teachers what do you need from parents of kids in your class especially those exceptional learners right kids that are going to maybe need a little extra support and one of the resounding themes was communication which seems obvious but I am a mom and I have a first grader and It's kind of challenging actually. Like we don't I don't know how your guys' schools are set up. Your guys. We're trying not to say your guys. I don't know how your (laughs) schools are working on (laughs) this. I know. It's a personal goal. I don't know how your schools are set up, but I don't go into my child's school, especially now with COVID. I never go in and talk to the teacher. It's not like preschool. And so it does take a level of intention to reach out to the teacher and really kind of establish just a relationship. I'm so grateful to my child's teacher. She's wonderful and my daughter loves her. And she always tells me about how things are going. And I have a really verbal kid who just will tell me like, and then so-and-so you know, touched this person's chair and then they had to you know, lose two minutes of recess or whatever. So I get all the details, but from my kid but it's like reaching out to the teacher and really establishing that relationship. I think that even in parenting, we tend to do this, right? Like things are going well. We'll just stay at the park for 10 more minutes and then things fall apart. So if you know that you have a child who might struggle or you've, you know, already kind of, this isn't your first roller coaster, you might really want to consider like reaching out to the teacher and just building that relationship. Hey, how are things going? I, I, especially with my little one, she likes to take pictures of things that she does at home. And she'll be like, can you email that to my teacher? So I'll just email random pictures of things that she does. Teacher's probably like, oh, here she is again in my inbox. That's okay, though, because then something comes up, you know, and maybe like, for example, my daughter had an issue on a math test where she just really, I think, didn't understand the directions for this one section. And I just reached out to the teacher and I was like, hey, is this a concern? You know, but it wasn't weird because I already know her. She already knows that she can call me, Katie and, you know, what we had for breakfast three days ago, because Anna wanted to send her a picture. So I feel like <laughs> it doesn't feel so weird. And again, it doesn't need to be like a daily check-in. In some cases, maybe it, it would. But in this sense, I think it's just that it's almost like an ounce of prevention, right? You're just going to get to know that teacher and build that relationship. And that can be really helpful just as like a first line of defense.
0: Mallory and Lori, did you have any suggestions too? Parents that are dealing with this
1: situation, they're parenting an exceptional child, perhaps their child has ADHD, they really are thrust into the role of advocate. Most parents don't understand how the schools work. And this is something that we also talk a, a lot about on our social media is understanding the medical side of things is different than the school side of things. And how can we make these two things work together to really support our kids And it's really important for these families to understand, but it's complicated. And so they're thrust into this role of having to advocate for their child without even necessarily knowing what they're advocating for and how to do that and what their rights are. So encouraging families to learn what their rights are within the school and what to request and how to request it. And there are other people in the school as well that could be helpful to these families outside of just the classroom teacher, like a school counselor Or the school psychologist or vice principal sometimes takes on some of these responsibilities. So, knowing that there are options out there, that there are other people they can talk to with whom they can bring up these concerns, it is just so challenging that they're instantly taking on this advocate role. It's hard for a lot of
0: families. I am so glad that you're teaching families those things because when I need to advocate for my child, I can just kind of throw around the weight of my PhD, you know, and I can come in and say, you know, I like, I have that level of confidence. You know, I love that you're empowering parents to have that level of confidence, to be well-versed in kind of the system that they need to be able to go into. And I just want to also add that parents in general tend to be quite experts in their individual child. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think most teachers recognize, like most teachers and school administrators, you know, if you come in with that sense of, look, I'm an expert on my child, you're the expert in the school setting, how are we going to work together to support my kiddo.
2: I have a PhD and I will go into IEP meetings frequently and I get so much pushback. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's intimidating for me a lot of times being in an IEP meeting. So I think for parents, like knowing that it is really helpful to have an advocate or somebody with you who understands the law because the, the law with 504 plans and IEPs is extremely complicated. When I'm at a meeting, I can get pushed back, but I know the law quite well. And I can say, wait a second, the law doesn't actually say that. Whereas a parent, you know, you're not going to maybe know the intricacies of that to be able to push back a little bit. And so I think a lot of parents really assume that the schools know what is correct with that. And a lot of them don't necessarily. Like we've been talking in particular about ADHD, and you know, the Office of Civil Rights really came out and said, We're doing a really not good job in the schools of supporting our kids with ADHD. In fact, there's been so many violations. In the past years that we are basically coming out with guidelines for schools and saying you need to follow these guidelines because there is so much discrimination going on our kids with ADHD. And essentially, you know, if your child has a diagnosis You know, you should be advocating for at the very least a 504 plan, because if your child has a diagnosis, it's, you know, you get that diagnosis because it's impacting them to a significant degree in their life. Um, And so typically they need those accommodations to level the playing field, you know, so that they're able to access the curriculum and do things at the same level as their peers. So it's really important for parents to know that, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you just give us a little, a short little definition of a 504 plan or an IEP? Can you just for people who are listening and are in the position where I'm going to have to start advocating?
2: Yes, for sure. So with a 504 plan, if your child has a diagnosis, again, it's really a plan to say, here are some accommodations that will level the playing field. You're not changing the curriculum You're not changing their instruction. You might be doing things like, you know, giving them fidgets at the desks that they can kind of occupy themselves, Um, giving them extra time on a test if they get distracted or taking a test in a quiet room if they get really distracted in a large setting or they get anxious during testing. So again, you're not changing the actual work that they're doing. They're getting the same level of work. Whereas for an IEP, we're really, when we look at an IEP, we're looking at, does this child need intensive instruction in a particular area to really make adequate progress. And this is really important. It doesn't have to be just academic. We have plenty of kids who have ADHD or autism who do well academically, but their challenges are with speech or social communication Mm -hmm. or social skills or behaviors. Their behaviors are so significant that they can't access the curriculum or the instruction, they might need intensive instruction in those areas to really make progress. So it doesn't just have to be academic. Your child can be doing well academically, but still need an IEP um, and still need instruction in those areas. And the IEP again has goals, you know, has a little bit more weight, I guess it doesn't have to be, but typically in the schools, you have meetings annually where you're going over Did they? meet their goals, those types of things. Whereas the 504 plan maybe, you know, isn't taken as seriously in the schools. It should be, but it isn't, you know, based on my experience working in the schools and, and how they have that set up. So. I think it's important for
1: parents to know that a 504 plan and, and an IEP both hold the same legal weight. The -hmm. school is legally obligated once this document is created and signed and agreed upon by everyone they're legally obligated to implement it. But like Lori said, sometimes 504 plans aren't seen as so important, but they both come from federal law. They both hold legal weight. One is not you know, more valid than the other. They're both important
0: and the school has to follow them. Thank you for that clarification. You know, it's, Lori, you mentioned having fidgets on a 504 plan. And I know so many families who are in schools whose teachers have made a blanket ban on all fidgets. And that really, like, that means that probably for some of those kids, if they had a 504 plan, that that would be be being violated.
2: It would be, yes, for sure. Yeah. I have said this before. I do testing with lots of kids with ADHD (laughs) and I've tried fidgets and a lot of times it is very distracting, but that doesn't mean that all of them are distracting. And it doesn't mean that there aren't you know, sometimes it's putting Velcro under their desk or having silly putty or something like that, that's maybe isn't distracting for other students or them, where it's not like a toy, but it gives them that ability to like, get out some of that, those fidgety behaviors or things like that, that they can't control, you know, they really can't control it. Their body is kind of moving and going and they don't have the ability to regulate that and they need some help with that. So making blanket statements is probably not appropriate, but I think most parents think, oh, the teacher should know that. And they don't like teachers don't necessarily get a lot of training in ADHD or 504 plans or things like that. So we do have to do our part in kind of educating. And if we, as parents don't know those things, getting an advocate to help with those meetings that does understand the law is really helpful.
0: I used to do that in grad school. How would people find someone to come and be an advocate for you in those? meetings? Yeah,
2: I think doing a Google search for an educational advocate in your area. So I think that can be helpful or talking to other parents. Like if you can get on a Facebook group in your area, that's, you know, asking parents within that group, like, have you had issues at a meeting? Did you use somebody and getting recommendations that way? Most people can be helpful.
0: I would imagine your child's other service providers might also be plugged into those networks. Like if your child is an OT, you're seeing an SLP. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're in
2: a rural area, again, just remember that, especially in this last year with COVID, like- we can do zoom meetings. Like that's really easy to do. And I, most of the IP meetings I attend via a phone conference or zoom. I'm not there in person. So, you know, it's really easy to have somebody who's maybe in it. You know, you have more options for instance, in the greater Phoenix area, but you might be in Yuma and there's not a lot of people. You can still have them assist you with that meeting. Awesome.
0: Thank you for that. Okay. So I have one last question for the three of you. If there is one thing you wanted families to know as they wrap up listening to this episode about, you know, if they've got a child who's struggling, who has some challenging behaviors that might or might not be related to ADHD. But what is it that you really want families and parents to know about their kid, about themselves? I'd love to hear that.
2: It's not your fault. (laughs) And Say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault. And I know that there can be a lot of hesitation about do I want to go down the route of getting a diagnosis when you're starting to see those things. And I think there's many advantages to that. And I've not once had a family come to me for an evaluation and said, I regret this experience. Almost every single person just feels this sense of relief of okay, now I, I know what this is. Now I know the science based information to help what this is. And I have a direction and a plan. And now my child even potentially knows what this is so that they can not feel like they're stupid and behind their peers and not as good as their peers, that they, their brain works differently. And so that they can celebrate the awesome ways that they are different their peers aren't. I just was talking to a kid recently and had autism. And we were able to talk about all the amazing things that he could do that his other friends couldn't do because he had autism, Um, how observant he is with his environment and his amazing, intense interests in math and things like that, that really make him unique. It can be so helpful and empowering to families and really set your child up for success in the future with getting interventions that we know are, are really helpful for that particular diagnosis.
3: I think something else that I would want parents to hear is just, you know, as Lori said and Mallory too, it's not your fault, um, but also that you're not alone. I think that for parents who are raising exceptional kids, I was speaking to a mom yesterday and she told me, you know, my kids are just extra and they're (laughs) extra energetic and they're extra happy and they're extra athletic, but they can also be extra difficult at times. And when you look at other people and you look around a restaurant or see other kids just holding their parents' hand nicely in the parking lot, it can feel really discouraging and really isolating. Like, I'm the only one that struggles with this. And we know that that's not true because we deal in a different population, right? And so in our jobs, we're seeing families all the time that are struggling, but looking for those resources, connecting through social media is such a great way to do it. But understanding like this is a normal I put that in quotes, experience for a lot of families, actually, that go through this. And you're certainly not alone. And I think that almost all of us have fears and concerns about our children at times that can be really validating to be around other people who are going through something similar.
0: Absolutely. Mallory, is
1: there anything to add there? I think they said it great. And like you said earlier, Laura, parents are the expert on their child. And they really are the best person to help their child. Yes. And they have the power. And so letting parents know and empowering them with the knowledge that they truly are the expert and that they can help their child, I think is one of the, um, one of the most important takeaways I hope parents get from that.
0: That's beautiful. I just want to add as a, a person who has a challenging kid, who's highly anxious and her anxiety manifests, and she has some sensory issues too. They manifest in some really challenging behaviors. I waited way too long to get help and support because I had this idea in my head that I'm supposed to know like I'm the expert. I'm supposed to know how to do all of this. I'm supposed to know how to handle it. But it's different when you're when it's your child. Mm-hmm. So and so yes, I just want to echo you're not alone in this. It is not your fault. And there's nothing wrong with needing support. And that doesn't mean you failed in any way. And your kid's Absolutely. so lucky to have you. I mean, you're going to be mm-hmm. their greatest partner in figuring out what it means to to live with these things because many of these things are going to be kind of walk alongside your kids for the rest of their lives. And so mm-hmm. how powerful is it to have tools that they're learning now as kids, you know? Yeah, yep. okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for being here with me. I hope everybody will go and follow the Childhood Collective on Instagram. Their content is amazing. And I know you have a a course, too, on ADHD, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that course so people can go and check it out and get support if they need it?
2: Yeah, we have a online course. It's a video based course for parents who have kids with ADHD between the ages of four and 11, four and 12. And again, our course is really trying to give parents like simple science backed information in a kind of a step-by-step process of how to support their kids at home. Cause we just kind of see parents really struggling with knowing what to do. And again, our point is to say, you don't need to be an ADHD expert. You don't need to have a PhD in child psychology to do this. You really don't. Um, A lot of this stuff we weren't even trained in, in schools. And so we're kind of, yeah, we're (laughs) kind of packaging the stuff that is the most important stuff that you need to know to really support your child. And and really help them to grow and to be independent. I mean, that's really what what we want for our kids. How do we find joy in parenting? How do we grow them into the amazing kids that we know that they can be? So that's what we want to do with our course. So you can check that out at thechildhoodcollective.com.
0: I hope that they do. That sounds like an amazing resource. Probably is helping so many families. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so
2: much for having us on. Yes. Thank you so much. And
3: we love your content too. So this is really fun to get to sit down and just chat with you.
0: (laughs) Oh, I had a lots of fun too. I think we could probably geek out about this stuff forever. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Probably.